Good morning, Jerry. Buongiorno. It is October 26, 2009. We're here again at the Society, and um, we have lots more good things to go over. We have started last time talking about the different organizations that um, you worked with and helped to fund or co-fund environmental projects. I think we ended with the James River Association and the Southern Environmental Mile Center. So I had Virginia Junior Academy of Sciences. Mm. Well, the Junior Academy, as you can deduce, is um, the children's version of the Virginia Academy of Sciences, which is a statewide organization of scientists who do real science and teach it in colleges and universities and in high schools. The uh, Junior Academy um, is mostly for high schoolers and is a good source of encouragement and training for future scientists. The reason we um, found them and support them is when Sidney and Francis Lewis retired from the endowment board in the mid-1980s, um, we wanted to do something to honor them. So we set up a scholarship uh, called the Sidney and Francis Lewis Environmental Scholarship. And then we needed someone to administer it and run it. And the idea behind it was to encourage science environmental science as much as possible, but certainly science that would benefit the environment. And we wound up um, establishing this scholarship through the Virginia Junior Academy of Sciences, which as it turns out has an annual um, competition and uh, meeting where hundreds of papers prepared by student researchers are presented in I don't know, maybe 25 different topical categories. And the Academy and the endowment agreed that encouraging environmental science was a good thing. Because even then, in the mid-1980s, there wasn't but so much of it going on at the lower grade levels, below college and university. So we thought that would be fun to do. And you have to understand the Junior Academy is all about enthusiasm and encouragement and, you know, so they would hand out first, second place, third place, and honorary mention awards in all these categories. And at their annual um, meeting, when all the papers were presented, then on the final morning they have this awards ceremony. And depending on the venue, usually at one of the state universities like James Madison or VCU or University of Virginia or George Mason or wherever it might be, um, I think the first year I went, it was at uh, the College of William and Mary. You have hundreds and hundreds, maybe well over a thousand kids packed into an auditorium, all screaming and hooting and hollering when their classmate was, you know, named and Joe Blow gets third place for environmental science or whatever the science or, or chemistry or biology or something like that. And they do this for child after child after child, these high school kids. So you have all these teenagers getting you know, excited about science and their friends winning. And the biggest prize pretty much was a $50 uh, bill. And uh, the dear man, uh, Dr. Decker, who was on the faculty at University of Richmond at the time, who ran all this, literally stood there with not quite a fistful of $50 bills, but he had a table full of 50s and 20s and 10s, which were first prize, second prize, third place. I think honorable mention got a handshake. So he had, you know, God knows how much money sitting on a table on stage. And um, so when we announced a scholarship that was going to amount to um, a four-year scholarship um, to any college or university that the child wanted to go to and got admitted to, uh, and we would pay $10,000, we immediately changed the game for the Virginia Junior Academy because uh, that was a lot more than $50 at a time. And so it was $2,500 a year for the typical four years, but of course you didn't have to use it all in four years. You could give it in three, that's fine. If you didn't spend it all in four, that's okay. You could go to graduate school and spend the rest of it there, but whatever. It made a big impact on these kids, and of course it drove up 
interest in environmental science because once the parents figured out that their child could get $2,500 a year if they win, you know, they were equally enthused and encouraged. So there was a lot of interest and a lot of papers were submitted. And eventually, I guess now since the first one, it's been 22, 23 years since the first scholarship was awarded, and all those children have gone on graduated. Not all of them studied environmental science. Some of them certainly did. Some of them uh, pursued medical school. Some went to law school. Some, one, one of my favorite young women who, uh, she went into the Army and was a captain in the Army for a few years and left that and started a, some sort of uh, business out in Hanover. Um, we don't, we don't hear from them much after they graduate, but that's, you know, not so much our fault as it is theirs, I think. We try, but kids tend to move around a lot these days, so it's hard to stay in touch. But we do require um, every semester, at the end of each semester or the beginning of the new one, they have to send us a written report and a copy of their transcript so that we see how they're doing and we see that they're still eligible to stay in school. But we also want to know what they're up to, what courses they're taking, uh, what they like, what they found interesting. And some of the students have been just marvelous storytellers. They really know how to tell a tale and they have a lot of fun and they don't mind telling us. Uh, others are more serious and direct and, you know, I took this, I took that. I had a good professor here, I had a bad professor there. Uh, and I always send these off to Mrs. Lewis every time we get one of these letters in and she enjoys reading them, I think. And her daughter, Susan Butler, does. So. Um, that is our involvement there. We, we, then ha we have another smaller scholarship, a $5,000 scholarship, um, named for Judge Henry McKenzie, um, who was another original director, and that uh, is also run through the Junior Academy. And, and I will say that both of these scholarships, but especially that first one, which is now a $14,000 scholarship, uh, not a $10,000 scholarship, stimulated additional philanthropy. In fact, one school in Newport News, I think, was so impressed that the school, the teachers, and the students um, held bake sales and whatever else to raise $1,000. And they do this year after year, and they give at least a $1,000 scholarship themselves. And someone else has chipped in with another $5,000 scholarship, I think. So it, it has not only produced an interesting cohort of scholarship winners over the years, but it has produced additional philanthropy on the part of people who think that science is a good thing and that it ought to be pursued and encouraged at the high school level so that kids go on and, we hope, make careers out of environmental science and protecting the only world we know. So that's that story. Thank you. That's a great story. Let's see, the Isaac Walton League of America, the Save Our Streams program, what can you tell us about that? Well, it's an up and down program. It's, it's one of my great frustrations, to tell you the truth. Um, in 1986 or 7 also, we realized that the state had no capacity to really monitor water quality in Virginia. They're just 50,000 miles of streams and rivers they don't have a staff to monitor even a fair sampling of that, let alone a, a, all of the miles. And so we had heard about a, a volunteer monitoring program that was established by the National Isaac Walton League, and they had just hired someone to start such a program in Virginia. Um, and so we met with her and decided to invest in it. And let them organize a, a group of citizen volunteers uh, to monitor streams pretty much in their own backyard. I mean, you're not going to live in Fairfax and monitor a stream in Wythe County. You're going to get people in Wythe County to monitor the streams in Wythe County and so on and so forth. And pretty soon after a couple of years, they built up a, a decent network. It wasn't as large as I would have hoped, but there were um, several dozen people around, maybe more, and then they were training more all the time. And then the idea was, this is really a state responsibility. It's not for citizens to do, although we should be interested, but we should really hold the state accountable for finding out whether their pollution prevention or 
pollution control uh, permit program is doing any good. And the state assumed the responsibility in the late 80s for a couple of years, and then the next governor came in and had to cut budgets and said, nope, we're not going to do that anymore. So we started it up a second time, and um, it just got up and running, and the state agreed to take it over again, and then after a couple of years, the state cut it out of its budget again. We gave it one more shot back in 
they each form allies and as a result it's easy for the legislature to see no consensus and therefore not take them seriously meanwhile these four legislators uh, senator joe gartland in particular and delegate taylor murphy really really wanted to see some good laws passed and they were very frustrated because the environmental community was not acting um, out of or singing out of the same hymn book on key in tune um, with great effect and so they said can't you please call all these people together for some kind of a summit and plan a better approach so we did and the legislators came as well we had a two-day retreat in later that spring I think and then we had another one about a month later and we had representatives from about 20 different environmental groups from around the state present to hash out what the problems were what potential solutions might look like and whether it was not time to create some kind of a statewide umbrella organization that actually represented all of the groups around the table and a lot more besides who weren't there because they were strictly volunteer groups and couldn't always send someone to get away for a couple of days and consequently um, now there was a group called the Conservation Council of Virginia that included some of these people but not all of these people and they had been around since at least 1969 that was my 1970 was my first encounter with them and they had had their ups and downs over the years but they weren't totally inclusive and they didn't have everybody at the table so they wanted to form a new group that would do that and eventually there was after a third meeting in the fall there was agreement to do that to form a statewide citizens network um, that was originally um, it wasn't Virginia Conservation Network it adopted that name a couple of years later but that's basically the one we all know it by and they eventually came together and you know there are various theories of organization um, but one of them says one way to form a board to govern a representative organization is to have representatives from member organizations. And uh, that's not necessarily a flawed model, although in this case it turned out to be pretty tricky because all of the people who sat on that board pretty much were the staff directors of the groups that they represented. So when they came to the VCN board, they were wearing not just their VCN hat and trying to act in that corporate interest, but they were also wearing their Chesapeake Bay Foundation hat, James River Association hat, Nature Conservancy hat, Southern Environmental Law Center hat, uh, and so on and so forth. So they had, in a way, the model is a built-in conflict um, because not all those groups agree all the time on a course of action or how to go about things. So. Um, there were some growing pains among gr getting all the groups to agree and, and, and what they would agree to. What were their limits? Where would the Nature Conservancy stop and VCN begin? Or if VCN board adopted a policy that the Southern Environmental Law Center didn't agree with, um, then what do you do? And there were a lot of discussions like that that kind of broke the board down into a couple of different factions for a while there while they were working all this stuff out. And at some point, I guess we were asked to intervene and listen and talk and assess. And I suggested that they ought to get different board members so that they, they should get more of the this, this volunteer members of their organization's boards to be a volunteer board member on VCN so there wouldn't be quite so much of a direct conflict and you might get a little bit broader diversity of membership and more world, worldly experience or something. And so they gradually, they agreed to do that, but it took them a long time to get there. And I think they're there and have been there for a while now. And they've been through several executive directors over the years for whatever reasons. Um, and they've had one now for about three years, which is coming close to a long tenure. So I think that whole organization is functioning a lot more effectively today. But you know, when you think about it, it's taken 20 years to get to that point. It's remarkable. 
And anybody who studies or works with nonprofit organizations knows that there are definite stages of organizational development that new found organizations go through in the course of their development if they survive at all. And you could, if, if there's people who eventually watch this or listen to it who, who want to take an interesting tack on the work of the endowment or the role of the environment in Virginia's history, one place they might look is to study the field of nonprofit organizational development and see how environmental groups in Virginia evolved over time or use the VCN as a case study because I must say there were times when I came close to at least figuratively tearing my hair out um, over the thing because it, it was sometimes very frustrating for us to be its biggest supporter. We gave it about $350,000 in its first seven, eight years or so to sustain it while it worked its way through some of these difficulties. And um, it's been, as I say, 20 years now since the thing really was officially started, I guess more like 18 or 19 since it kind of came into being and um, maybe 12 or 14 since it really started to get getting its act better together with a more diverse board and uh, more independent fundraising and uh, more professional staff and uh, less internecine warfare. Uh, and yet if you study nonprofit organizational development, you'll see that they pretty much hit all the bases without knowing what they're doing, because this, this is a real problem in environmental nonprofits, is that they're so focused on their mission that they don't realize that they are just like every other nonprofit organization, and that there are rules and, and experiences that they all share in common, whether it's an historical society with a big membership or a small environmental group with a hope for big membership. A lot of the things that you do whether it's fundraising or staff development or engaging the world in, or your world, um, those are all things that are easily uh, objectified and analyzed and studied and lessons can be learned from, but it's a tough sell. In fact, there was a whole book written back in the, um, when all this was starting back in the early to mid 90s, one of my good friends uh, named John Rausch, who used to be the chairman of the board of the Nature Conservancy nationally, wrote a book uh, basically about the xenophobia of the environmental movement in the United States uh, in that they didn't trust anybody who didn't agree with them and that if you didn't agree with them, you couldn't work with them. And there was this hate reeling for corporate America and it was, it was totally self-defeating. Not the Nature Conservancy and, uh, and a few others, of course. They, they quickly realized that as Patrick Noonan, their then um, president once said years ago famously uh, in, when asked about taking money from a big oil company I think it was or a big chemical company said well you know how can you take that money don't, don't you think that's tainted and he said well it may be tainted but it tainted enough and we're going after more of it and um, the bigger groups understand that uh, you have to work with all sectors you have to work with government agencies you have to work with businesses in order to get anything done in this world because while the nonprofit sector has a lot of leverage and does an awful lot of good, it's still the smallest part of society compared to the government side or the business side, private side. So uh, just as a matter of getting anything done, you have to work with all three, which is what we've always tried to do since day one is promote collaboration among the three sectors in general. But some environmental groups uh, had a hard time with that. And, and really spent a good deal of the 70s and 80s uh, fighting against corporate America, you know, evil, incarnate, and so on and so forth. And I'm sure there probably were some people who, I don't know if they'd meet that test, but they certainly were not environmental stewards. And, and they deserve to be um, dealt with constructively, whether by fines or, you know, convictions or what have you. Um, but the, the, the xenophobia was a really good word capture the mistrust by a large section of the environmental community of everybody else. And I think many of the ones that survive today, especially the more local land trusts, for example, have gotten way past that. They understand you don't get anything done in 
agreements and work with the people who have the money, own the property, are willing to work with you. It, it seems simple once you say it like that, but it was not always so. There were a lot of, uh, a lot of things being worked out by some people, I think. A lot of anger issues, a lot of trust issues. I'm, I'm not sure what else was going on in their lives, but um, it complicated our work to get a statewide network of environmental groups established and functioning effectively. But I think um, by hook or by crook, it's, it's you know, in a lot better position to do that today. I'd like to hear about um, the Norfolk area, the Elizabeth River project. That's one of my favorite stories. In 1992, four friends got together for beer and pizza and uh, we're having a great old time, and the more they ate and the more they drank, the more they realized that the one thing they had in common was their love for the Elizabeth River. And one big problem with the Elizabeth River was that it was the most polluted river in the East Coast, and they resolved that evening to do something about it, to restore the Elizabeth. And uh, the next morning, they all checked in with each other and said, God, what did we agree to do? And then they committed themselves to it, and uh, one of them knew me, called me up and asked for an appointment for the four of them to come up and see me and tell me their story, which they did, and it was quite a story. And as usual, ultimately it came down to, uh, you know, can you give us some money to launch this Elizabeth River project, this restoration effort? And I said, how much do you need? And they said, well, we've worked it out and it'll be about $1,375. And I said, to restore the river? <laughs> And she said, no, to get started. So I said, great. Uh, that was the level of grant that I can do myself. I don't have to go to the board for a small grant like that. So I said, well, put it in writing, send it to me, I'll see what I can do. And so we approved the grant and it was mostly to gather everybody together in Southampton Roads from all four jurisdictions down there, uh, scientists and citizens and everybody in between school district to have a big conference, an all-day conference on the state of the Elizabeth River and what might be done about it. And Virginia Institute of Marine Science was involved from the very beginning because we had funded research there that helped show, you know, they were taking fish out of the Elizabeth with cancerous lesions all over them. It was just awful. You, you wouldn't want to stick your hand in the Elizabeth River in those days. It was a definitely not suitable for swimming and fishing. So after that, then they all agreed at the end of that day that what we needed was a plan and a set of objectives and a timetable and a schedule. So they needed a little bit more money to do that. So we gave them another grant. And pretty soon they had this incredible um, effort organized into 18 major uh, goal areas uh, for various aspects of restoring the Elizabeth River that needed to be attended to and are starting to line up partners and by this time the state government was becoming aware of it and um, realized that something good was underway here. We, I forget how much we put into it over the years but we continued to support it with its latest innovative effort at education which is the Learning Barge which is such a good project that even uh, Dominion and Virginia Power not only invested heavily in the construction of the barge, but it's in their latest bill that <coughs> consumers will receive from Virginia Power uh, this week or last week, showing a full-page discussion of the Elizabeth River uh, Learning Barge project. And uh, people from all over the world are coming to see it. And the endowment's role in that one was to put up the money to the University of Virginia Architecture School to help design it with their students and faculty and to the Elizabeth River staff to develop an educational curriculum for what they're going to teach kids once they get them on the barge. It's a floating learning classroom with real wetlands and everything. It's just wonderful. <coughs> just had its christening this uh, September of uh, September 14th, 2009 where I was happy to serve as an ambassador of ceremonies for all these wonderful people who donated to make it possible, and educators, and mostly the kids who showed up who were going to be among the first kids to learn something on it. And I'm pleased to say it's already booked solid. 
uh, well into the spring of 2010, and I'm sure they're beginning to take 2010 fall applications pretty soon for classroom visits. So the Elizabeth River Project has grown into a multi-million dollar, um, multi-purpose effort aimed at restoring the Elizabeth River to fishable, swimmable status by the year 2020, and um, has many partners in business, local government, state government, federal government, and the Learning Barge is the latest example, and it has won all kinds of awards, national awards, in architecture from the EPA for innovation and technology. It's, when I think of how $1,375 started this effort, I just continue to be amazed at some of the things people will do with just the right encouragement at the right time. It's, a, it's really a great story. The four people who got together initially, what kind of work were they involved in? One was a reporter for the Norfolk paper, uh, one was a scientist, one was the head of the SPCA down there, and the fourth one was um, a businessman, I guess. Um, yeah, I, beyond that, I'm not sure what he did. I think he started a, another voluntary environmental effort out in Virginia Beach. So it was an interesting mix of folks. The reporter eventually left her job at the paper and is for most of his time now has been the executive director of the Elizabeth River Project and the guiding spirit behind uh, getting things done very quietly, not in your face, very self-effacing actually, uh, and has built up good people and a good board and good partnerships. It's really, a, it, it would be another great case study to show how to do it right. It's a, it's a fantastic organization doing wonderful work and it, it, it's so, illustrates of something that um, someone said to me who is relatively new to Virginia um, when looking around the environmental landscape and said to me, every time I picked up a, a group and looked at it, I found the Virginia Environmental Endowment was there at some point. I said, yeah, usually at the beginning, actually, that's where we like to be. We like to give first dollar, not last dollar. And so many of the groups that exist today or have professional staff today or who are well-known and doing great work um, all really got a boost early on from DEE and some of them continue to get that um, not exactly on a continuous basis but on an ongoing basis over time uh, from us so it's the Elizabeth River Project and Southern Environmental Law Center would be two excellent examples of things we started back in the day and are now, you know, just world famous for what they do. How about at VCU, Virginia Commonwealth University here in Richmond, there was the Virginia Environmental Quality Index? Yeah, well that's an example of something that just shows that no one gets it right every single time. Um, they brought us this idea that says, you know, we can put together a lot of environmental indicators and put them on a scoreboard and, you know, track information that's available from the federal government or the county governments or both. And, you know, for certain select measures, we could develop a numerical index that may not be perfect, but at least it will be relatively accurate and will be changing relative to itself from time to time, getting better, getting worse for any given locality. And I said, I think that would be helpful for, you know, citizens to understand what the environment is like, what it's, how it's scored, where they live. That, that was the real reason to do this, is to build awareness. So they did it, and I said, you know, once you do this, you're committed to it. Oh, yes, we're, we'll keep it going. So we gave them enough for a couple of years to get it up and running, let them raise some matching funds to help make it go. And then at the end of that time, all of a sudden, I stopped hearing from them and said, so what's going on with that Environmental Quality Index Fund? Well, you know, we ran out of money, couldn't get any more. We've tried, but you know, nobody else wants to invest in it. If you want to give us more money, we'll keep it going. I said, I don't think that was the idea, was it? No, it wasn't, but that's where we are. And so it stopped. And there was a lesson to be learned there because there are certain things we do that are long-term 
like Southern Environmental Law Center or the Institute for Environmental Negotiation, even the Elizabeth River Project, groups that we helped start, uh, groups that we have sustained over time, over lengthy periods of time, uh, groups that we think are doing a great job and need to be supported, not just by us, but by lots of people. And by and large, that's how they've stayed in business, is by winning the support of a lot of other people besides us. Then there are other things that we do that are sort of shorter term projects that we may wind up investing in for three to five years or so. Uh, enough time to give them a chance to make a difference, complete a project, a study, whatever it might be. And then there are things like mini grants, which are very short term, one time projects, uh, or smaller grant projects that are basically a year long you have something if it worked or you don't if it didn't work and um, some and that's generally the three kinds of projects that we have funded over time the index we hoped would have been one of those two to five year project two to three year projects that would have leveraged additional funds to keep it going and that didn't happen so it's gone and it's unfortunate but um, you can now go to websites at the EPA and other places and get a remarkable amount of information. You don't need to have a separate one in Virginia. So um, we have found that local indexing is really tricky. We did it up in Loudoun County with a uh, Loudoun environmental um, education data project, which again, while we funded it, functioned. As soon as our funding ran out after four or five years, the county did not adopt it and they did not uh, fund it, so it petered out. Uh, in Roanoke, we did a benchmark study back in the mid-80s or so, which was the first of its kind in Virginia, to identify various quality of life measures and benchmark them and measure them year after year. And the Chamber of Commerce was in on it. I think all of these things, well, maybe not the Environmental Quality Index one, but the Loudoun one and the Roanoke one had local impacts in that at least for a while they raised local officials' awareness of environmental matters and that they had to pay some attention to them. And in fact, Roanoke today has uh, a, a very progressive take on environmental issues and is um, is doing a lot of good things. Loudon, I don't know whether they are or not. They're, they're probably not the worst of them, especially considering the incredible growth rates they've had in the last decade or two. So uh, these projects do sometimes have beneficial effects even when they seem at first blush to have been failures. And um, I would have to say from our point of view, they didn't accomplish what they set out to. But on the other hand, Maybe they did accomplish something that nobody was smart enough to anticipate. So uh, we have very few actual failures here in our work. <laughs> we'll find a success story buried in there somewhere if we mm -hmm. have to. Tell me about Virginia Forever. Well, Virginia Forever was one of those big ideas that we have every so often or things that we recognize every so often um, that shape our grant making. And this was a realization that the state government was more or less talking a good talk about protecting the environment and conserving natural resources. But you know, one of the most important rules of public administration is that budget is policy. So when you compare Article 11 of the Constitution of Virginia saying, you know, the state shall do this and the various laws that the General Assembly has passed to do this, and the speeches that governors and legislators occasionally make about how they must do this, to the actual budget document, which actually does pay for doing this, you find a big disconnect. And uh, lots of talk, very little um, budget priority, less than, when we looked seriously at this in 2001, we found uh, natural resources and the environment was getting barely 0.6% of the state's general fund budget. That's 
less than a penny on every dollar. So I gave a speech back to the Garden Club of Virginia's Legislative Forum, I guess it was 2002 in January when the Warner administration first came in, saying, you know, put your two cents in. Let's tell people they need to get this up to two cents on the dollar. And uh, people thought that was a very clever way of stating a very obvious problem once it was pointed out to them. And so um, we then assembled an organization that eventually came to be known as Virginia Forever, which is a, a small group, uh, a board uh, consisting of major business players like Dominion Virginia Power and Smithfield Foods and major environmental players such as the Nature Conservancy and Chesapeake Bay Foundation, among others, to work together on the one thing that they could all completely agree on, which is that the state needed to put up more money. We were ranked last in the country of the 50 states in 2002 in per capita spending on the environment. 50, that's worse than a lot of places that you don't want to be behind. So our goal was to try to make that 2%. And uh, then the economy started coming along and helping a bit because tax revenues increased. And Virginia has a law that says when we actually do have a state surplus, then 10% of that surplus will go into the water quality improvement fund. So when you had a surplus, as we did a couple of times during the first half of the decade, 10% um, of it went into the water quality improvement fund. So that's sort of extra money. And then there was this group working with their partners and members and others to lobby the General Assembly and the governor to put up more money. And the, sh the short story is that until 2008, they had been very successful in, in either by direct appropriation to the general fund or by some bond sales, like there's a quarter of a billion dollar bond fund uh, was involved, over 600 new million dollars was on the table for uh, natural resources, land conservation, water quality improvement in particular. And I'm convinced that never would have happened, or certainly not that much would have happened, without this group being as effective as they were in presenting a united front to say, we, the business community and the environmental community, agree that you guys got to put your money where your mouth is. And so, what happened was, when times looked a little better, you know, we shot up. And then when things started to fall, that money disappeared. That had been going on for decades. Every 10 years or so, we'd go up with a bond fund for parks and recreation and land. But in between, you know, there were these long valleys, and then it would shot, shoot up again, maybe somewhere. So uh, finally, Everybody agreed that we should try to make this a more regular process and develop a list of priorities for land and water conservation and present such a list, a capital improvement plan, to the General Assembly and the governor to say, if you give us the money, this is what we're going to do with it. Makes eminent sense. That hadn't been happening. That, that was one of the reasons appropriations were a roller coaster because uh, there wasn't really a plan for capital projects. And um, there still isn't but at least both candidates for governor this year have been informed of that by Virginia Forever, and they, I understand they're both very seriously interested in the idea, so that maybe by the end of the next governor's term, we might actually have a capital investment plan for natural resources, somewhat akin to um, the transportation improvement plan, the six-year plan for roads and bridges and rail and transit that we have in transportation in this state. There's no comparable plan. And, and one of the things that makes transportation planning work, um, besides the long lead times involved, and therefore you need to have a multi-year plan, is that it has dedicated sources of revenue. And the environmental community in Virginia has for decades been going about it by saying, give us a dedicated source of revenue. And the legislature has pushed back by saying, for what? And so I think our great insight was to say, let's tell them what first. And if we can prove to them that we can spend the money responsibly, constructively, with great effect, 
then maybe after you demonstrate that, they'd be willing to dedicate some revenue to that on an ongoing basis. But I think they were putting the cart before the horse by asking for a dedicated source of funds before they could tell anybody exactly what they would do with that. Now, we hope we'll see a plan that says, here's what we're going to do in years one, two, three, four. Here's how much each of these projects is going to cost. And now, would you give us the money to do those things? And if we do that well, maybe in four years you say, okay, I want to continue to do this, such as Governor King's goal of conserving 400,000 acres of land during his term. Um, both candidates, again, have said, you know, that's a good idea. I'm going to try to continue that. But they could have just as easily said, no, I'm not really interested in that. And that would have been the end of that idea because there is no institutionalization of that idea of conserving approximately 100,000 acres a year. Well, this capital investment plan would do that. If, the, if there were such a thing in place, it would say, okay, one of our goals is 100,000 acres a year. Another one of our goals is more state parks. Another one would be, you know, so many sewage treatment plant improvements or new constructions in a year or whatever the particular projects might be, you'd have goals, you'd have objectives, you'd have a schedule, you'd have a plan, and with all of that, you might actually get some money on a recurring basis rather than on a roller coaster basis. So that's what that's all about. How about any work you've done with the Virginia Manufacturers Association? Not much lately. Um, I, I, I just can't think of anything that we've done with them in quite a while. And the Virginia Institute of Marine Science. Lots of work. That was another game-changing idea of uh, moving from the Chesapeake Bay fisheries management approach of one fish at a time to uh, looking at all the fish in the sea and how they interact, interact, how they are preyed upon, how they are polluted, um, and doing all of that in a new way of uh, modeling dynamically the ecosystem and the population densities within it so that when the fisheries management agencies in Virginia and Maryland go to set um, fishing quotas for crabs or oysters or you know even menhaden one hopes and lots of other fish, there are about 28 commercially viable species in the bay. You would have a notion of, um, all right, suppose the number was 100,000 of something whether that 100,000 was the last 100,000 there or whether it was 100,000 out of 10 million. And they really didn't know that. So they were basically saying, how many did you catch last year? And say, okay, you can catch that. Well, they st started figuring out that that wasn't a very smart way to go about it. But figuring out a new and different way to go about it is easier said than done. So we launched a major new initiative in 2001, 2002 at VIMS to uh, develop that new approach. The Chesapeake Bay Agreement of 2000 called for it. Um, very few people outside of a few scientists had any idea what to do about it. And so now we have a first-class team at VIMS that's been in existence for eight years, doing a fabulous job leading the Chesapeake Bay fisheries management and planning efforts by doing multi-species ecosystem-based management uh, based on real data real interactions from how these different fish prey upon each other, how other people fish for them, and how much quantity, how much pollution is affecting them. And in other words, it's a very complex subject with a lot of interactive dynamics that is now the basis for how we're going to start managing the fishery instead of how many did you catch last year. That's the end of my list. Wow. What have I left out? Oh my gosh. Um, I'm sure there are a lot more stories <laughs> that you left out. but. I think at our recent board meeting, we talked about the future, and uh, looking backwards, one of our board members said, well, you know, I think it's been leadership, leverage, and legacy. That, that's how I sum up what we've been up to, and I thought that wasn't so bad. We've certainly provided some leadership to environmental improvement in Virginia. We've certainly leveraged our funds in a big way, and um, I think the legacy is still being written, but I think there are a lot of groups that we have helped to form and get started that are still here many years later and have the prospect of being here 
many years going into the future. And uh, if we were to shut down tomorrow, you know, we could say we've accomplished a lot. We don't plan to shut down tomorrow. Um, we still see lots of opportunities out there. Like Linwood Holton used to say, today is opportunity day, do something. And um, I've always remembered that sign on his desk when he was governor. And it's had a big impression on my professional life because uh, we are always out. And, and Mrs. Lewis was the one who would say, oh, don't worry about making any mistakes. Make new mistakes. That's the way you should live your life and make the grants. You know, we can't expect every grant to work. And we learn something from every mistake as well as every success. So we do that. We're still out there pushing ahead. And we're looking at climate change, local government decision making, uh, water quality monitoring, and you know enforcement of the Clean Water Act, the Chesapeake Bay restoration. You know EPA is talking tough today, but you know frankly we've seen there, been there, done that. Haven't seen any great improvements. So. A lot of foundations around the Bay Area are getting kind of fed up and impatient, and we may all band together and spend some money to hold the EPA and the state's feet to the fire in, in that regard. Uh, again, you know, um, talks is cheap, and rhetoric, while it can be encouraging and serve as a rallying cry, the fact is it takes money to get anything done. We want to make sure that the money is there to do what Virginia's responsibility is under its own constitution, uh, and we want to make sure that the federal government finally puts some money into the Chesapeake Bay Restoration Program, which it has been notably stingy with in the 26 years of the Bay Program's existence. Uh, sooner or later, uh, people are going to realize this is a life-determining cause. I mean, it's not just a good cause. It is the quality of our planet, our countries, air, water, and land. You can only push Mother Nature so far before she starts to bite back or fall apart. And, um, you know, we've been insulting it in ways unprecedented in human history for the last 50, 60 years or so. It's time that um, we stop prevented pollution in the first place, conserve natural resources as much as possible, and raise the level of educational literacy so that people understand why doing all this is important. And that's what DEE tries to do every day, every grant cycle, every year. And um, so far, so good. I hope there'll be a lot of fun opportunities going forward. You said recently at a board meeting there were some new ideas that you were floating and you do have hope for the future in some very successful projects. Well, you know, I outlined some of the major topical areas, and uh, I'm hopeful that we'll get and find good people and fund them and make some change occur here. But uh, specific projects, you know, we have to wait till we negotiate with some of these folks to find out exactly what they want to do and how they propose to do it and how much it's going to cost and where else they're going to find matching money and all that sort of stuff. That is so critical to leveraging what we're trying to do. But mostly if DEE says it's interested in something, we don't have much difficulty attracting good people to tell us how they might accomplish it. Of course, we're talking about the story of DEE, but it's also your story. And I wondered as you look back on your career, has this been very satisfying for you? Oh, absolutely. I feel like one of the luckiest people on the planet I had the good fortune to meet someone a long time ago who helped me figure out what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, and I've been lucky enough to know that and pursue it and have the opportunities to fulfill that dream. And uh, you know, I would like nothing better for everyone to have the same opportunity. Um, most people do if they are willing to make the effort, but not everybody realizes it's a possibility. So there's something to be said for teaching people how to figure out what they're good at, what they're really interested in, who does that kind of work, and where they want to live. And um, talk about increasing productivity in this country. Can you imagine if everybody was as happy and productive and effective in their work as they could possibly be with all their talents? I mean, it would be just stupendous. But 
that is yet to be the case. We have, thankfully, plenty of people, I suppose, of whom you could say that, but there's still plenty more of whom you could not yet say that. And I think that really ought to be a larger goal of, of education, is to um, enable people to understand what they can do and to pursue that, to encourage them to pursue whatever it is the talents neurobiology. Uh, I do think it's very important that uh, we have good philosophers as, as uh, a former philanthropist once put it, uh, and good plumbers, because if we don't have um, both good philosophers and good plumbers, neither our pipes nor our theories will hold water. So um, it's important that people be encouraged to pursue than they are in you. And so uh, enabling people to figure out what they really want to do and how to go about doing it, I think is one of the great unmet goals of, of education. And uh, over time, I'm trying to make my own little contribution to that pursuit. It's been very satisfying for you. And I wonder, other people outside have probably acknowledged the good work you've done. Have you received any uh, awards or citations of any sort? Oh yeah, um, there, how do I say this? Um, there, there are some that I've been very honored to, to come by, I guess. Um, there's one, a fairly prestigious one, uh, run, organized by the Conservation Fund, uh, the National Geographic, conservationist and two or three years ago I was one of those chosen and that was really a remarkable uh, recognition. Um, the University of Virginia has established a um, gosh, an award in my name which is aimed at um, recognizing people who um, pursue environmental excellence and conflict resolution. In other words, bringing people together to work together to get something done in a constructive way. And, and that's been very interesting in the several years that that award has existed now, especially to show up and you know shake the award winner's hand. And I've always thought of awards like that as something that you might have done after you're gone. And so to be there every year is kind of like a wonderful bonus for me. I hope they'll keep the award going after I leave the planet, but um, I won't be around to tell them any more about it, I guess. But um, that's been kind of uh, a rewarding experience, to say the least. I've met some very interesting people that way. This interview's been very rewarding for us, and probably will be for researchers in the future. God, I hope so. I wish if there's anything else we think of, we try to at least do uh, a digital audio um, follow-up, because... Uh, there's so much to this story um, that I'm sure analysts of various kinds could pick at and dissect and try to make hay out of or make sense out of. Um, I will say that we have been very deliberate about things that we've done over time, while at the same time another watchword is flexibility, to be alert enough to recognize a good thing or a good person or a good idea when we came across it or when it was brought to us. So that while we have priorities and goals and things we're really trying to make happen, we also realize that we're not the only people out there with all those good ideas and we try to recognize them. But somewhere in that statement there is a there's a lesson to be learned. And I guess it is that we are one institution and we have exerted a lot of leverage and a lot of leadership perhaps. But what you have heard, what I've been talking about, is just this one person's 
view of the subject. There are plenty of other people you could talk to contemporaneously with the endowment's efforts who would probably give you, you know, different perspectives and maybe different priorities, but that's not what my job is. My job is to answer your question about what the endowment has done, what we tried to do. And while I think that's important, it's not the only thing that's been going on during that time. There are, there are other people, uh, and some of the grantee organizations in particular could bring some light or shed some light on this. And uh, so we'll see. It's, it's been a great, great experience, and I hope we'll continue to be able to make a difference for some years to come yet. And uh, maybe we'll see what happens then. The trend today is for people to work far beyond age 65, and we are wishing you many more <laughs> productive years with the BEE. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Thanks very much. Yay! Yay. <laughs> 11 o'clock. 11 o'clock. Wow. Yeah. Went longer than I thought, but we had a little delay there for getting started.